When it comes to Christianity, the church has never been a take it or leave it proposition. In fact, when you study the New Testament, you'll discover that there is no such thing as a churchless Christianity in the Bible. None whatsoever. God did not design the Christian life to be lived in isolation. He designed it to be lived together. And the way that we enjoy it together is through this means by which God has given us called the church. In fact, it's not just some Christian organization that we decided to design and think up and create just to help promote our ideas and our theological concepts. No, this is something that God purchased. He died for with His own blood. The Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, He hath purchased the church, the church of God, He hath purchased with His own blood. And so by that very synopsis would, do, would be to admit that, that to be against the church or to be even indifferent toward the church is to be against and indifferent toward Christ because the church is Christ's possession. I think there's a growing epidemic in American Christianity today that has caused people to create their own view of what the church should look like. But God always has and will always view the church in terms of an assembled people who gather themselves together. A group of people who come together. And here's what we need to be reminded of is that God didn't send His Son to die just so that we could attend a church service once a week. You understand that? God did not die. He did not send His Son Jesus to die just so that we could come to a church service once a week. You know why Jesus organized the church and established it with His own blood? Well, because it's not meant to be lived in isolation. It's to be done together. In the purest definition, church, church is a people joined together. A people joined together. And so it's easy to say here, as we look throughout the scripture, particularly this, this chapter here in 1 Thessalonians, that the church is to be in this together. In fact, the theme of Thessalonians is church health. And what Paul has done through this letter is he has expounded thoroughly throughout the letter on what it means to be a healthy Christian and what it means to be a healthy church. And one of the overwhelming sentiments that is shared over and over again by Paul's description of a healthy church is the unity that the church understands is that we are in this together. We are all in this Together, But what does that look like? That's the question I want us to ask this morning. If we understand what the church is, it's a group of baptized believers who've committed themselves together to follow Jesus, to serve the gospel, uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, work in terms of, of, of God's will. If we're supposed to do that together, if God intends for us with his own purchased possession to assemble regularly together, to come together, uh, to, to live together, to enjoy the Christian life together, what is that to look like in terms of healthy Christianity, healthy church? Well, I want you to write down a couple of things as we go through this chapter this morning as we think about being in this together, all right? What does it look like? What does that mean, the church is in this together? Number one, we sacrifice for one another. To be in this together, to be in the Christian life together, we sacrifice for one another. 
verses 1 through 3 here, the Bible says in chapter 3, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. So we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you, to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Now here's what we need to understand. The Apostle Paul has been kicked out of the city of Thessalonica due to a threat on his life over preaching the gospel and establishing this new church. In chapter number 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he expresses that although he and Timothy and Silas had been ran out of town, they were doing everything they could to get back to Thessalonica to be with this church. In fact, we see that in chapter 2. Hold your place there in chapter 3. And just look up a few verses into chapter 2 in verse 17. The Bible says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence... But not in heart, we have endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. So they've been ran out of the city due to the persecution. However, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were doing everything they could to get back to see the people and to minister to them. And so when you get to chapter 3, Paul tells us exactly what happened. Look again at verse number 1. He says here, wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, that is when we could stand it no longer, particularly here, the separation that existed between Paul and the church, Timothy, Silas and the church, when we could stand it no longer. Think about what he's saying here. Paul and his pastoral team were so burdened for the church in Thessalonica that they, they had to do something. We could no longer sit here and wait this out. We had to do something. We had to get to you. We had to be together again. And so here's what they did. Look at verse 2 and 3. In fact, it begins in verse 1. We thought it good to be left alone in Athens. So Paul says, we sent Timothy, we sent Timothy, our brother, our minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel to do what? To establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Now, the we here is Paul and Silas. We thought it good. Paul and Silas thought it good to be left in Athens by ourselves. So what do we do? We sent Timothy to come and lead you and to encourage you. Here's what Paul is saying. We'd rather be abandoned. That is, Paul and Silas would rather be left alone by sending Timothy back to Thessalonica instead of keeping him for themselves so the church in Thessalonica could have a pastoral shepherd. It's quite clear. You see what Paul's doing here? He's making a sacrifice. Instead of keeping Timothy for himself, he is choosing rather to be abandoned by Timothy so that the church in Thessalonica would not be abandoned themselves. So he sends what was his right-hand man. The one to whom Paul had put his utmost confidence in. His utmost reliability. And of course, we've studied passages in the New Testament where Paul has struggled internally when Timothy wasn't present with him. 
But Paul's love for the gospel first and foremost and his burden to see the church at Thessalonica continue to grow in spiritual health without hindrance or disruption is what moved Paul to let go, to sacrifice his closest associate for the good of the church. He made a sacrifice. I'm, I'm actually living out this passage right now in my ministry. I came to Charlotte in 2008. Charlotte's my hometown, as your pastor uh, mentioned a, a, moment, a, a moment ago. I was working in a Bible college as a staff evangelist. Did that for uh, four years while I was in college, four years after graduating college, eight years altogether. And then uh, the Lord uh, put in my heart about church planting. I've been praying about two locations primarily. I was praying about New York City. Uh, I was considering coming to Staten Island, New York to start a church. I was also praying about the country of India, uh, going to, to Delhi and planning an e English-speaking uh, church there. Uh, New York, India, and I, I ended up in Charlotte. I'm not sure how all of that uh, worked out, but God in His divine providence led me back to my hometown uh, where we uh, started a church or replanted a church with just 30 people in 2008. Six months into it, my brother who's five years younger than me graduated from Bible college and we brought him on hired him to help us in the establishing of this church for the last almost 11 years he has been my right hand man he's been uh, our administrative pastor essentially leading and pastoring our church so that I can focus my responsibilities on studying and preaching and meeting the uh, needs of our people from a pastoral perspective I trust him. I have my utmost confidence in him. I, I rely on him to, to make decisions that, that I don't have to make. He has been a gift from God to me. It was just a few months ago he came to me and said, Jonathan, I feel the Lord is leading me to pastor. And so I tried to give him a raise to keep him around a little bit longer, but that did not work. When God puts it in your heart, God puts it in your heart and not even money can talk you out of it. He says, I love our church. There's no reason for me to leave. You've been good to me. Uh, I have what anybody could ever want uh, serving here, but I have this burning desire to pastor. And so right now our church, as Jared, my brother, is, 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 is discerning God's will for his life. We are fixing to make a great sacrifice. Uh, our right-hand man, uh, essentially the pastor of our church, uh, the man who's been uh, 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 given the responsibility of structuring and leading our ministry is soon to leave us. But what we've had to do as a church is make a decision that we care more for the work of the gospel and the glory of his church than to keep something for ourselves when God wants to use it for greater purposes in his kingdom. That's what Paul is doing here. He's showing the church at Thessalonica that to be in this together means that we make sacrifices. And church this morning, we are in this together. That means at times we need to make sacrifices for the gospel and for one another. To put others before ourselves, to let go of that which would be better used for God's purposes in other places, perhaps even in other places people. It's time to really stop and ask a good question that maybe we haven't thought about in a while. When was the last time that you genuinely sacrificed something for the advancement of this church, for the good of the gospel, 
And we can apply this into so many different areas of life. We think of finances, we, we give of our offerings, and, and, and I think a lot of people, they, they, they pay their tithes and give of their offerings without even thinking about it. When's the last time we've actually sacrificed financially? We give of our routines, of our, our time, but when's the last time we sacrificed time? That we actually gave up something to serve. We gave up something to give. We, we gave up something, not for ourselves, but for the betterment of the church. That's what God wants us to understand. That the church doing life together means that we sacrifice for one another. We get it backwards, don't we? We look around and each other and say, well, 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 I'm here because you need to sacrifice for me. <laughs> the pastor needs to sacrifice for me. And the truth is we all need to be sacrificing for each other. That's what he's saying here. We're in this together. We sacrifice for one another. Right. Number two, not only do we sacrifice for one another. Secondly, we're in this together. We, we encourage one another. We encourage one another. We find that in verses four and five. Listen, encouragement is one of the key reasons why God Establish the church. Consider the principles of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let me read them to you. Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he had not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The principle is clear. That life is better together. And that when we attempt to live life in isolation, in any relationship, there's greater dan danger of things falling apart. And the truth is the same in the world of the church. We do not need to come and live and act in isolation. We're here for one another. God has designed this Christian life for one another. So one of the things we need to do is encourage one another. Because two are better than one. I like to run. I, 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 I don't have too many extra hobbies. I, I don't hunt. Hunting's a big deal where I'm from. But I... I, I don't, I don't, I've never ever even been hunting a day in my life. I took our men to another church in our area that had a hunting thing going on. And of all the hundreds of people there, I was the guy that won the big rifle. And I don't even go hunting. Uh, the irony of that is quite humorous to me. I, I don't hunt. I don't, I don't fish. I, I enjoy sports, but, but running's my thing. That's my time to decompress. In fact, since I landed here yesterday, I've been looking outside the hotel where I'm staying and just kind of seeing if there's some good spots for me to run. I plan on running a few days while I'm in town. I enjoy it. I just finished my first marathon a few weeks ago. I, uh, I was excited about it, trained. In fact, it was, it was the biggest series of races in my life. It was called the Dopey Challenge. They had it at Disney World. And the reason why they call it the Dopey Challenge is because it's four races, four days in a row. There's a 5K on the first day, a 10K on the second day, a half marathon on the third day, and you end it with a full marathon on the fourth day. 48.6 miles in four days. And there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, you, you have to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to catch the bus at 3 o'clock to get to the start line for the race to start at 5 o'clock in the morning. And so your, your hours are all messed up. Well, the day before I left to go down there, my son comes home from school with a stomach flu. 
I almost bought a hotel room that night, and now looking back, I wish I would have. Because as soon as I got down there after running the 5K, I caught that stomach flu that my son had. For three days now, I'm having to run nearly 40 miles with no food in my body, uh, barely even able to stay hydrated. In fact, the day that I ran the marathon, I typically eat, and some of you parents understand this, these Uncrustables. I like to eat Uncrustables when I'm running. It just gives me a little zap of energy, a little peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I normally eat two of those, three bananas, 16 or 18 energy chews along the way. I mean, I'm eating while I'm running. You're burning off so many calories. Well, I couldn't even get that in my body. All I could eat that day was a banana. It was the only thing I could eat. I had no food for three days. I was struggling. I was dehydrated. It was 80 degrees outside, but I had a buddy with me. And there were many, many times I thought to myself, you know what, I could easily jump into one of these cars and they could take me onto the finish line and I'd probably get the same medal and nobody would even know about it. But my buddy from church who was running there with me, he was, he was encouraging me along the way. Come on, you got this, you got this. And then there's those long moments. Any of you the long runners, you understand that there, there are those miles you're really good. There's those miles you're hating life. I mean, it's up and down. It's, it's, a, it's a really good, uh, really good illustration of the Christian life at times. The ups and downs as you keep going. I guarantee you this, I would not have finished those races a couple of weeks ago had it not for been my friend who was running with me who encouraged me along the way. I was running that marathon from mile one to five. I was struggling. I knew I probably wasn't going to be able to finish. My wife was spread out along the course. The first stop I saw her was in Magic Kingdom. She was in front of the castle. So I'm running up Main Street. I'm coming around Magic Kingdom. I see my wife there. I start crying because I'm an emotional basket case at this point. She's like, why are you crying? My brother's over there with a camera. He's like, don't start that junk now. Don't do that now. You got a long way to go. I said, I can't finish this thing. I have no food in my body. I'm hurting. I don't know how I'm going to do this. You got it. You got it. You got it. I see him again 14 miles later in Animal Kingdom. And they're lying to me at this point. You're going a lot faster than your watch says you are. You got this thing going. I'm like, I know y'all are lying to me. No, we're not. Go. You got it. I was struggling. I got to mile 20 and I just walked from mile 20 to mile 24. I was dehydrated to the point I had ice pack on my head, ice pack in my neck. I was just struggling. And then when I got to mile 25, I saw my wife inside of Epcot. And she was standing there and she's going, Woo, that's my man. That's my husband. Look at him. Woo. And that did something for me. I ran over there and I hugged her. I kissed her. I said, I'm never doing this again. I've already signed up for next year's though, all right? I said, I'm never doing this again. And those last two miles, I ran like Forrest Gump. You ain't never seen me run before. (laughs) Encouragement does something for you, don't it? I mean, when you think you're about throwing the towel, when you can't make it, when you can't survive, it's amazing what somebody coming alongside of you saying, you got this. We're in this together. We're going to do this. Listen, we need encouragement. And Paul says, here's why we need encouragement. Look at verse 4. We need encouragement because we have sufferings. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. I love that phrase. He said, we told you before this ever happened that you were going to have some sufferings. Remember, persecution has come upon the church. And Paul said, before that persecution ever happened, we told you that if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. I fly a lot. Those of you who fly, I don't know if you're like this. I've I've flown many, many, many miles around the world. I still get nervous about it. Even getting on the plane yesterday, I've done this a thousand times, but I still, there's a little bit of anxiety every time I get on the plane. When I 
fly somewhere and the captain before he ever take off says to me or to us, just want you to know it's going to be a little bumpy up there today. We do expect a little bit of turbulence. We'll keep you posted on how that goes. Now, I don't know about you. I feel a whole lot better about that. I do. I can expect it. I know it's coming. That way, when we get up there in the air, and the plane's shaking a little bit. That's all right. He knew this was coming. Everybody's done. The guys that flew in front of them saw it. We're good. They know what they're doing. Where I struggle is when they say, you know what? It's going to be a clear flight to Philadelphia tonight. Not a cloud in the sky. It's a beautiful day for flight. And then 30 minutes in the air, I feel like we're going to crash. <laughs> what did he not know was going to happen here that's going on around me? That's when I start freaking out. It's when I know in advance it's going to come, I feel a little bit more calm about it. That's what Paul's saying here. The Christian life is not easy. There are going to be heartaches. There are going to be trials. There are going to be sufferings. Buckle up because you're going to experience some hard times. And that was comforting to them. It encouraged them knowing to expect it when it came along the way. And the same is true for us. We need to encourage one another because there's going to be hardships ahead of us. There, we're going through sufferings in the moment. We need to encourage each other because there's suffering. Secondly, verse 5, because we have an adversary. Look what he says in verse 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you. You know you have an enemy today. Now, the enemy may not be that mother-in-law you're thinking about right now. I mean, she may get on your nerves, but she's not your real enemy. Or fill in the blank. Maybe it's the neighbor. Maybe it's the boss. Yeah, he's my enemy. We, we have difficulties along the way, but you have a greater enemy than any of those people combined. Our adversary, Peter said, the devil is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. He wants to imprison us. He wants to corner us. He wants to defeat us. He wants to discourage us. We need the church because the church has an enemy. And he discriminates against no one. We need the encouragement of God's people because we have sufferings. We have an enemy. Number three, we, we, we have work to do. We need encouragement because we have work to do. The very last phrase of verse 5 says that our labor not be in vain. And I think it's true in any work, but especially gospel work, that we can be prone to discouragement. Particularly if we feel that our labor or gospel efforts have been in vain. That's why we need the weekly gathering of God's people. So that no matter how we walk into this building, we can walk out encouraged, equipped, and excited about the work that God has given us to do. No doubt in my mind that some of you walked out, walked in this building today discouraged, down. Something's weighing heavy on your mind. And that's why God has given us this imperfectly beautiful thing called the church. To encourage each other in our sufferings. To encourage each other when the enemy is attacking. To encourage each other in the work of God even in difficult moments. There's no doubt in my mind that certain Christians have been gifted supernaturally for encouragement. You ever meet people like that? I mean, it's just a, they just have the gift. They know exactly what to say. They know exactly what to do. I, as somebody in our church made me some cupcakes the other day. Just, just this, the design and the effort. I, think, I, I told my, my connection class later that Wednesday, I said, that individual, they have the gift of encouragement. Never saw it coming. They know exactly how to say, I'm thinking about you and praying for you. 
There are certain people who are gifted that way. But you know, all of us, regardless of our gift sets, are called by God to encourage one another. Can I challenge you to do two things every Sunday when you come to open Bible? Two things. In fact, maybe you ought to write these down. Commit every week that when you come to this assembly, you'll bring two things with you. All right, I'm only asking for two things. Here they are. Number one, bring a worshipful heart. Bring a worshipful heart. A heart that is ready to worship God. A heart that is ready to hear from the Lord. Every Sunday when you assemble together and walk into this building, bring a worshipful heart. Here's the second thing you need to bring. You ready? An encouraging word. An encouraging word. Bring a worshipful heart. Bring an encouraging word. That, that means intentionally find another brother or sister in the gospel and encourage them about the things of the Lord. Why? We all need encouragement, every one of us. I need it. You need it. We're in this together. And because we're in this together, we need to encourage one another. We need to sacrifice for one another. Write down number three. We enjoy one another. We're in this together. We enjoy one another. You come to verse six through nine. Paul is just giving us several statements here of joy about his relationship with the church at Thessalonica. I won't have time to break all of this down, but he says in verse 6, Timothy, he, he brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. What Paul is saying here is, I am thrilled at God's work in your life. He's expressing joy over what God was doing in someone else. And I, I think certainly here, Christ-like joy is when you and I are genuinely happy about the things God is doing in the lives of other people. Not that we're bitter about it. It's not that we're saying, hey, well, why God's doing that for them? Why aren't he doing it for me? No, no, no. No, joy. I mean, truly enjoying God's people is when we're happy to see God's work in the lives of other people. He goes on to say, he says, I'm blessed of your thoughts toward us. They, they have a good remembrance of us always is what Paul is saying. He says, I look forward to being with you, desiring greatly to, to see us as we also to see you. By the way, that type of enjoyment doesn't just happen. To, to be genuinely joyful about being with other people and they being with you. That, that's something that is cultivated by selflessness, transparency, acceptance. I think a good sign of church health is when the people not only want to be together, but they find ways to be together. They find ways. And a few things give a jump start to my heart, then know that people in our church are meeting together for times of prayer and Bible study and fellowship and encouragement outside of the allotted times that we've structured for our church to assemble. That they genuinely enjoy being together. I hope and pray that you would genuinely enjoy being with the people God has given you. That's what Paul's saying here. I can't wait to see you again and I know you are excited to see us again. There's this genuine joy of being together. He talks about their faith being a help to them. We were comforted by their faith. Paul says, I thank God for you. We thanks, what, what thanks we can render to God again. And then he talks about in general there, verse nine, that their life brings them great joy for all the joy we're with, we joy for your sakes. All three of those verses, and if you adequately spend time there, you can see it. Paul is speaking of the great joy that we have in doing life together. 
And that's why we need to understand what the church is all about. It's not just a place for me to show up once a week to hear a lecture from the Bible. No, it's a place for me to come and to sacrifice for the good of those people. It's a place for me to come and enjoy the presence of, of one another. It's a place for me to come and to encourage those who are gathered. Write down this last one and we'll be finished here for this Sunday school hour. Number four, we sacrifice for one another. We encourage one another. We enjoy one another. We're in this together. Finally, we pray for one another. We pray for one another. This begins in verse 10. In fact, verse 10 is just a continuation of the sentence in verse number 9 where he talks about the joy that he has for them. And one of the reasons why he has so much joy for them is because verse 10. Look at the beginning of verse 10. This is, this is incredible. Night and day praying exceedingly. Think of that. Night and day praying exceedingly. They were all the time praying for one another. I really want you to give you some thought. If the members of Open Bible won't take time to pray by name for each other, then tell me, who's going to pray for you? Does anybody in here this morning stand in need of prayer? Oh, I do. I do. But if we're not going to pray for one another as a body of believers, as a group that have assembled together to do the Christian life together, then who's going to pray for us? I'm afraid that even our prayers are so shallow that sometimes the only thing that we ever pray about if we pray at all is, is sickness alone. And, and, and don't get me wrong, that's not to say that we shouldn't pray for one another's illnesses. But I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're in your traditional Sunday school class this morning or you're coming to a group or a Bible study and say, all right, let's, let's take some prayer requests. Just, just sit next time and listen to how many of those are just health related. But illnesses are not the only thing that we are to pray for. And it's not the most important thing that we are to pray for. The truth is, the only time we ever pray for other members of this church is when they are sick, then we're failing to see what the biblical gift of prayer in the church is all about. Let me show you what I mean. From verse 10 all the way down to verse 13, there were specific things that they prayed about beyond health and sickness. In verse 10, they prayed for one another's maturity. This is so insightful to me. Look at it in verse 10. Night and day praying that what? That when we see your faith, that we might perfect that which is lacking. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is lacking in your faith today? What is lacking in your faith? Let me ask you another question. Have you taken what is lacking and shared that with another member of this church so that together prayers can be made for that which is lacking between you and God? Oh, I could, I could never do that. I don't want people to think weird of me or think that I got some kind of problem. Well, well by all means, tell me. How are you going to perfect, how are you going to strengthen that which is lacking if people aren't praying over that which is lacking? You know what Paul was grateful for? 
that they prayed night and day for their own maturity. That we would grow through these areas of weakness. And a pastor called me here recently and said, Jonathan, how do you, how do you share the struggles and, and just the, the difficulties that you go through as a pastor? I mean, who do you turn to? And, and, and the premise of the question was in reflection of, do, do I turn to my church people? Or are there some other pastors in which I can confide in? And no question, there are indeed other pastors. But here was my response. My response was, before I am the pastor of Laurel Baptist Church, I am a member of Laurel Baptist Church. I am a member before I'm a pastor. I am as equally a member of our church as anybody else is equally a member of our church. And that thought process reminds me that I need them as a member as much as they need me as a member. And so what do I do when I'm going through hardships? I go to our church. And I have those relationships just like you have relationships in this church. I have those men that I eat breakfast with and pray with and, and, and run with and those type of things. And I say, look, I'm, I'm struggling in this area. I just recently told a man in my church, I got three kids at home, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. Any, many, miny, and no mo. <laughs> Listen, my wife and I are struggling. You know what I asked him to help me with? I said, I need you to pray for my patients at home right now. Because life as a pastor, life as a human being, with a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old, is a little challenging, and I'm trying to figure it all out. And my patience is lacking. He texted me a few days later and said, Pastor, I'm praying for you and Kathleen today that your patience will be strengthened with your children. I text back, I said, it's a good thing because I'm fixing to kill one of them right now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you understand what I'm saying? When's the last time, if ever, you've taken something that's lacking in your faith, went to another member and say, I am struggling here. Pray that I will mature. Man, I, my, my time's done. I'm already up. But can I just give you these last two things and we'll be finished? Number two, they prayed for one another's emer, uh, maturity. Secondly, they prayed for one another's love in verses 11 and 12. Oh, man, there's so much that I could say here. But he talks about us genuinely praying that God will help us love one another. Huh? Huh? Have you asked God to help you to love that person who's here this morning that may be a little unloving toward you? The one that struggles to look at you, the one that won't shake your hand, the one that ignores you, the one who's been insensitive, maybe even directly malicious to you. Paul says here, I am exceedingly grateful that night and day you pray that you will love each other better. Wow. We're in this together. We pray for each other's maturity. We pray for each other's love. Here's the last one. They prayed for one another's holiness. It's in verse 13. To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in Holiness. Oh, that God would break our hearts to seek the prayers of the church over our own holiness. Our own holiness. We love to talk about the unholiness of others, don't we? The unholiness of Hollywood, the unholiness of, uh, of uh, uh, politics, the unholiness of maybe even our own family. But what about our unholiness? 
Imagine what would happen spiritually if in our church, instead of making health requests, we made holiness requests. Paul said, I'm incredibly grateful that you're praying night and day for each other's love, maturity, holiness. Church, we're in this together. And if we want to be a healthy church that is filled with healthy Christians, we need to make sacrifices for one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to enjoy one another. And by all means, we need to pray for one another. Pray for one another. And those are the things that I believe God will use to make this not just a place where people come together once a week to hear a book taught, but it's a place we live for place that we give our priority to, people that we love, that are like family, because we're in this together, which he says in the end of verse 13, that these things might be found blameless until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a subtle reminder that we're in this together before Christ comes. And we'll be in this together after he comes. We might as well practice now what God intends us to enjoy then. And it's the beauty of his church.